Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrey Degelor. In today's episode, our editor Robin Wouters talks to Emil Ifram, the founder and CEO of the company called Neo4j. The company has just been valued at over 2 billion US dollars in a funding round where it raised 325 million dollars. Listen to this conversation to learn more about the rise of graph databases and the future plans of the Swedish-born unicorn. Hey, this is Robin Waters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here remotely, of course, as usual, by Emil Eifrem. He is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Neo4j, co-headquartered in Sweden, where he's dialing in from, and California. Emil, thank you so much for joining and taking the time to join the podcast, and please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure, yeah. First of all, uh, great to be here, and good to meet you virtually for the first time, as we just uh, established, but hopefully we'll have a chance to meet face-to-face at some point soon. So my name is Emil Afram. Um, I'm the CEO of a company called Neo4j, which, um, you know, at the highest level is a is a database company. So we're part of this entire generation of alternatives to the traditional, you know, what's called the relational or the SQL database, which reigned supreme for decades, invented in the late 70s, and then dominated for 30, 40 years, until basically 10-ish years ago, when there was this explosion of choice in the database space for the first time, you know, again, in decades. And we're, we're one of them. Our particular point of view is that it's called a graph database. You can think social graph, right? So nodes and relationships between those nodes. And it turns out that in data, there's a huge amount of value in figuring out how things fit together, right? And that's our point of view of the world. Very happy to go more into, into that, but that's the highest level. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, maybe just a bit more on the background of the company, because as I was researching for this interview, I noticed that when you launched the company, it was actually on TechCrunch. It was still called Neo Technology at the time, but that was even even longer than a decade ago, wasn't it? It was October 28th, which is my birthday, fun fact number one. That's, and it that's was in, what the main decision that's factor the reason. is like, what's Robin's birthday, then we launched that. Yeah, and the other fun fact is that I was actually working for TechCrunch at the time. So I wish I could say I wrote the article, but I didn't. It was Nick. But yeah, so, so it's been more than a decade since you launched the company, but I would love to know what sort of preceded that. Like how, what, what came before that and why did you start this company uh, back then? If you can remember. All the way back. I, 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 can't, I can't remember. So, so I was born and raised in Sweden, grew up here, and then you know came of age, right, late, late teens, early 20s in the first IT bubble. So joined a, uh, what was what I thought of as was a small company back then, but they had this weird term for it. They called themselves a startup, right? And I'm like, what do you mean startup? <laughs> I was like, oh, you mean a small company? No, 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 it's so much more exciting. It's high growth, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So I joined there not as a founder or anything, but um, just as, as, an, as an engineer, as a developer. Uh, this is before college even, uh, right? So I was, you know, 20 years old, and but quickly became the CTO and VP engineering for that for that company. So ran the, the engineering team, you know, and we were 12 people when I started, 50 people a year later. So it's like, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And, and really my first experience with kind of business life as well as for sure with with startup but also building an organization being a manager and all that kind of stuff and at that company we ran into the problems that ultimately created that was the ultimate trigger for us to to create neo4j because we were working with very complex data that was highly connected it was called enterprise content management right so this is a big file system on the web you can think of it, right? So files that sit in folders, that sit in folders, that sit in other folders, which is actually a very connected data structure. It matters a lot in which folder you sit and 
you know, how, how the folders are nested. And this was also what we today would call the multi-tenant SaaS application, but it wasn't called that back then. It was called ASP, Application Service Provider. But that meant that, so we had one system and, you know, hundreds of customers, all of them believed that they had their own special focused private instance, much like when you log on to Gmail today, it looks like you're the only one on that in your organization. Like your organization is is the only one on it, but actually it runs on one platform, all, all these customers, right? So that meant that we had to have very sophisticated security models, which were, you know, Robin belongs to a group, that group belongs to a group. And, you know, one of those groups have read access to this content. It's just like a super big, complex, messy thing that we tried to shove into the traditional relational database. And the SQL database is amazing at a lot of different things, but fundamentally it's a spreadsheet, right? Like it's it's tables, it's rows and columns. And we had just very messy, organic, rapidly changing data that we try to fit into it. And, you know, it created all kinds of problems. And ultimately we realized that, you know what? What if we could have a database that looks exactly like Oracle, right? I was back then and remain today a big fan of the SQL database. I think it's a great piece of technology but looked exactly like that, but with a new data model, a data model that figures out how things are connected, right? And long story short, we researched, we couldn't find anything out there. And so then we said, you know, famous last words, like, screw it, let's just build it. Quote, mm-hmm. how hard can it be? How hard quote. can it be? <laughs> <laughs> 12 years later, how hard is it? Yeah, it turns out that it's it's really, really hard, both to build uh, what's called a fully acid transactional database. Very few companies on the planet have been able to pull that off. There's there's only a half a dozen companies or so that have been able to pull that off, a fully acid transactional database at scale, right? So that's really hard technologically to build. It takes a long time. And it's one of those things that takes, you know, nine women won't give birth to a baby in one month. It, it, it takes calendar time too, right? Um, so it's, it was very hard technically then taking that to market is so, so, so hard, right? Because the database is at the heart of every application, right? And so taking in, introducing a new type of database, especially from an unproven, tiny little Swedish startup, right? Like, why would you want to do that, right? Like, th- why would you take that risk? Well, you will only take that risk if you you perceive that the value to take this new, in, in, to, to, to um, build on this new database it's just orders of magnitude better. It just would allow you to do completely new things, right? And so, so I took on these two, I, we took on these, these two very challenging, both technological and go-to-market tasks. And we've been at it ever since, and it's been the ride of a lifetime. Great. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you more questions about that in a minute. Uh, but I think you left out a very interesting part of your backstory, which I read uh, in the email that I, when I was pitched this, but also on, on your bio. So I'm guessing it's true. Did you actually write uh, what you call the property graph uh, model on the back of a napkin on a flight to Mumbai in 2000? Yes, this is this is actually true. This is yeah. not one of these mythical founder stories where it, you sort no, of make it up afterwards. No, 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 it isn't. Well, okay. So it is and it isn't, right? It's It's absolutely accurate, but... It's a simplified message, right? Because I was I was flying to Bombay. We had a team there that was building this out. And then when people hear that, they think, oh, cheap Indian outsourcing. No, no, no. They happened to be Indian, but they were just the smartest people we could find. They were going to this IIT Bombay exceptional school. Anyway, so we're building it with that team. And we were going there. I was the CTO, but this is like at the 
absolute peak of the IT bubble. So we were hiring like crazy and building these things out. And I was whatever, 21, 22 years. I was like a kid, didn't know what I was doing. And so I got on this plane, yet we were taking on this task and building this new type of, 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 of database. I was completely behind. It's like frantically realizing that these kids were much smarter than I was. So I needed to stay ahead of the game and start thinking about it before I got there. And so frantically in pure desperation, I started sketching this out on the fly. didn't have my notebook. So it literally grabbed a cocktail napkin. So that's all true. But of course, what it doesn't tell you is that that was maybe 10% of the innovation. And we got it to that, that first week in Bombay, we got it to 80% then. Yeah. But so, so that's kind of the, the, re, the, the real story behind that. I love that there was some degree of imposter syndrome there where you just wanted to prove that you're as smart or or at least uh, you know smarter than the, the other guys. Um, but I love that there's a bit of healthy competition creates innovation as well within teams, I guess. Um, so take me maybe back to the 2009 when this article on TechCrunch appeared when I was there uh, celebrating my birthday, hopefully somewhere. But you launched in Sweden. I'm guessing most of your team back then was also based in Sweden. All of them. All of them. Two years later, I think 2011, you personally moved to Silicon Valley. Yes. I don't know if the rest of the company actually moved with you or that, that you just hired a new team there. Uh, what, what actually went down? Yeah, so I've always been very kind of Silicon Valley centric, even even prior to this. For some reason, most of my professional graph was was in the Valley. It was a lot through the O'Reilly network and, 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 and things like that. And through my early days in kind of internet gaming and, and things like that. And I always felt like, man, this is such a infrastructure, deep tech before that term was ever kind of anything that people threw around, right? And with the developer go-to-market, like a, I guess B2D type, type of a thing, right? It just feels very Silicon Valley-esque, right? And let's remember that the ecosystem here in Europe was very, very different back, you know, in the, you know, back, back, back in those days, right? And so I always suspected that we would we were going to go there. And I figured that it would be beneficial for the, for the company. And so when we raised our series A, um, this one ended up being led by, by eight roads out of, out of London, but it was always with the premise that as part of that, we would flip the company to become a Delaware corporation. We would move headquarters to California. I would move there. Now through some combination of inertia and mostly luck, a little bit of thought, we kept the engineering team in primarily Sweden and London, but but in the let's call it the European time zone, and that was a masterstroke. It ended up being this amazingly powerful combo where we had engineering in Europe, and then we had we built the headquarters. So I, I hired a team initially, a management team, and then the go to market based out of out of Silicon Valley, but always kept engineering um, in in Europe, and that model there. There's a lot of things that happen kind of serendipitously with, with, a, with a startup, of course, right? This is one of those where we, we, we really lucked into a model that I believe is, is the best model, actually, for, for these types of companies. Yeah. Oh, you, you talked earlier about the difficulties of taking this to market. Um, so when you look at sort of the, these difficult and long sales cycles that come with the type of technology you're, you're, you're building and offering, um, was it also beneficial for you to be there in the US so you could be closer to your main partners and, and you know, the main technology partners, but also for distribution and sales and marketing? Yes, I think it was. Uh, things just move faster in North America versus in Europe, right? And in, on the on the enterprise side, like they are earlier adopters largely than 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 Europeans are. It's also easier to sell into a big market with one unified language. All the stuff that we know, and even us as a European origin company, 
our revenues out of Europe were always ahead of kind of equivalent companies that were started in the Valley, right? Because we started out in, in Europe, but North America, we always grew faster. Things just moved, moved faster over there. So I do think it was beneficial uh, for us. Yeah, you keep using the words moved. Uh, at this point, you're, of course, a global company. You cater to companies all around the world. Is your revenue still growing faster in the US uh, as it was back then? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if it's growing fast. It's like our fastest growing region right now is APAC, you know, and also a lot of small numbers. Like it's, it's also the smallest one, but it's, it's growing very, very, very fast. And the, the largest revenue split is, is still in North America. But I don't think North America at this point is growing faster than Europe. It's an absolute levels larger, but it doesn't call out to me that, that it, it's growing faster than Europe at this point. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So, well, back to the technology, back to the product. What do companies, your customers actually use it for? And what's your typical customer look like? So we primarily sell into the global 2000, right? So over 80% of our revenue is from a billion and like companies with a billion and above in, in, in revenue, right? So we, so we monetize the, the enterprise, right? And we sit inside of projects that are classic graph database use cases like fraud detection, for example, right? Where normal fraud detection system will be able to identify anomalies and, that, and that's great. But what if you have a number of transactions that individually, none of them is an anomaly. They're all within the band of what's normal, right? But they're connected in fraudulent ways. So like a very common pattern there is what's called fraud rings, right? You can't see that. That's invisible to you if your view on data is disconnected data. But with a graph database, all of a sudden you can see connections, they emerge and you see these fraud rings. And so then you're a massive bank and you get three to 4% improved fraud detection because you can capture these fraud rings. And that falls down to the bottom line at and just that at an exceptional scale if you're one of the global banks. And just to give you a flavor, 20, like all 20 of the biggest banks in North America are, are Neo4j users, right? So that, that gives you a, just a, a sense for the, our penetration in financial services. So that's fraud detection, but then also recommendation engines, right? So, you know, Robin, you, you bought these three things. Emil, I bought these three things. Cool, we probably have similar tastes. Let's take the fourth thing that I bought that you didn't and recommend that to you, right? And that you may look at a, at a purchase record, like a purchase list that's a very tabular structure. Date and time, right? And then customer ID, product ID, and price. It's clearly a tabular data structure. You could just see the Excel in front of you, right? Except what I just said, like, wait, there's actually a customer relating to products. Those products relate to other customers. That's all about how they're connected. Right. And that's, of course, our sweet spot. Right. And so companies like big retailers, they get typically four to five percent uplift on their online sales by using graph based real time recommendation algorithms. Seven of the 10 biggest retailers in the world use Neo4j today. So those are two examples, but it's a completely horizontal technology. It is useful wherever you have data. Right. These are just the early adopter use cases. And then I'll say one, one final thing, which is an important thing, which is because the world is becoming increasingly connected and because data describes the real world, that's what data is. Data describes the world, right? So as the world is becoming more connected, data is becoming more connected. That means that use cases that absolutely was not a use case for Neo4j back in 2009, when you know you didn't, right? But <laughs> when TechCrunch, when Nick at TechCrunch wrote that, that article about us, then let's take the supply chain as an, as an example, right? You know, back then, a normal manufacturing company, anyone who's producing physical goods, stuff, right? 
they might have a supply chain that is two, three levels deep, right? And so if, let's say that they were kind of forward leaning back in 2009 and they wanted to kind of digitalize that, right? You can store that in a tabular in a SQL database, no problem. It's, it's a little bit awkward for the developers, but it works, right? Not, not a problem. Fast forward to 2021, right? Any company that is producing stuff is tapping into this global fine-grained mesh spanning continent to continent. And all of a sudden, there's a ship that blocks the Suez Canal for a week, or there's a bridge in China that falls over, or we have a global pandemic. And you need to understand how that cascades across your entire supply chain and your entire business. That's no longer two, three hops. That's 20 hops. That's 30 hops. In 2021, you have to use a graph database for supply chain, right? And so th that's an, an example of this wind behind our back. Every single day that goes, graph databases are more and more required for more and more use cases, which is kind of this, this big secular wind behind our backs. Yeah. And also just the sheer amount of data that's being produced and needs to be analyzed is also growing uh, by, by massively. Like yeah. Um, but then, you know, that gets me to the topic of actually machine learning and AI, which are singled out for Neo4j as the next sort of, you know, uh, space to tackle. Uh, can, you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So we grew up, uh, you know, I'm a developer by background, right? Our go-to-market again is win the hearts and minds of developers. And then the developers will pull us into these projects that small companies and 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 big companies and we have this massive community out there uh pre-pandemic uh, you know obviously the pandemic changed things but pre-pandemic there were the i guess 2019 was the last full year before the pandemic it was. <laughs> I can't imagine how long this thing <laughs> has been going on now right we had over 500 events about neo4j right so this is massive grassroots community and like most of our involvement was we we bought pizza and beers for for them, right? But then there's like an enthusiast in Jakarta and in Tokyo and so on and so forth, right? So that's kind of the, how we've gone to market today. What started happening towards the tail end just before the pandemic is that we observed that, you know what? At these events, there's not just developers showing up, there's a bunch of data scientists too. It's like, huh, interesting. And then you start looking into kind of the, the science behind that. And it turns out that relationships, how things fit together, it's a massively predictive signal for behavior. And there's this amazing book called Connected, written years ago in 2012 uh, by a professor at UCSD called James Fowler. Um, and it, he was the first researcher to, to get access to the Facebook social graph um, for, for academic research purposes. And what he ended up doing is that he used the graph to predict whether you're a smoker or not non-smoker. And 2012 was an election year, whether you would turn out and vote in the election or not. Not what to vote for. I don't think he dared to go there, but like whether you would turn out to vote, right? And he did that. And this is the mind-blowing thing. He did that. He proved out that if he knows everything about Robin, he knows like your demographic, your medical history, your preferences, like everything about you. Right, and you tr he tries to predict whether you're a smoker or not. Versus, if he knows nothing about you, but he knows your graph, he knows your friends and friends of friends. The latter is a much more predictive signal, and that's a mind blowing. Just think about that. What that even means, and I'll get back to talking about my company, but just think about that means as an industry, as a societal impact. What that means is, think about all these right to be forgotten laws. Right, if you go in and say, you know what, dear big platform, whoever that might be right? Delete all your data about me. It actually doesn't matter. As long as they have all your friends and friends of friends, they can still predict all kinds of stuff about you, right? So just think about that, right? 
Uh, that's a pr pretty fascinating piece that no one is talking Too about. Too scared to think about. To, to yeah, exa exactly, right? But so, so relationships, how things are connected, the graph is a massively predictive thing. Google knows this. They shifted over, they wrote publicly about this, shifted over all of their machine learning five years ago to be graph-based machine learning. And this is where the enterprise is going. There's not a single machine learning model five years from now that won't use relationships as a signal into it, right? And that's our opportunity. I was talking to um, an analyst from, from Gartner um, about six months ago, and, and he's the lead analyst for AI and machine learning for Gartner. And you know how influential, like anyone in the enterprise, they would go to Gartner if they have inquiries about, about something. And he said that, you know, in, in 2018, 5% of his inquiries uh, were about graphs. So he feels all the inquiries about machine learning and AI. In, in 2019, 20%. In 2020, 50% of his inquiries were about machine learning and AI were about graphs. And this is a completely new growth vector for us. So just just think think about that one. It's a, it's a pretty substantial and important thing. Yeah. Well, that puts you in a fantastic position for the future, I would say. Uh, investors agree. Uh, you just uh, were uh, funded by, I think, $325 million round, valuing you at over $2 billion as well. So that makes you twice a unicorn. Um, what's that mean for you? What are you going to, I'm guessing pizza for developers when we go back to live events, but what else are you going to spend this money on? Uh, well, but, but the pizza piece is, is important. Uh, so that's, that's for sure. So a couple of things. One is I do think there's a signaling thing here, right? So, you know, walking into the, the previous decade with, uh, just around the time when we, when, uh, we raised that first round in the TechCrunch article, summer, just a few months earlier, summer of 2009, no sequel happened. And that was kind of the, it, gave, it got in like this experimentation in data that hadn't existed before for several decades, got a name, right? And there's a site called DB Engines that is tracking new database projects. It's currently tracking 350 new databases, right? Which is just amazing because when I grew up as a developer in the mid 90s, there's like four or five to choose from, right? And they're all the same, but it's all a relational database, right? So it's a vendor choice. It was not a choice of type of database, right? And so there's this massive divergence in the early part of the previous decade. It is rapidly converging right now. There are a few breakout success, potential winners. No one has won yet, but potential winners. And there's not going to be a single company replacing Oracle. The database market is too huge for that and too varied, right? But there's going to be four or five, right? And this round was actually the biggest round ever in database history. I right? saw that. Yes. And so just that... That mm -hmm. signal to the market, I think, was 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 important and valuable, and it's it's validation of us, but it's validation of the category of graph databases as well. Okay, can we run just a little bit because I I know you also mentioned this in a Twitter thread when you announced the funding round, where you talked about the unbundling, the great unbundling of the database market, and I I know you already sort of. Uh, you know, um, talked about this a little bit, but can you can you go a bit deeper? Like, what what do you think will happen? Because you went, if you're saying we're going to go from 350 database back to four or five, that means a lot of consolidation. That means a lot of the technologies that are, are there now are going to become obsolete. Uh, how do you see this displaying playing out? Like, what's the timeline here? Yeah, at the highest level, there's two broad buckets inside of data management. One is operational data stores. These are Developers building applications, those applications use the database, right? And so this is what's called system of record, right? And it's where the world's information is being is being stored, right? And it's typically also, it's a system of record for now. It's currently what's happening, right? As you're posting that email, as you're putting that 
order into your shopping cart. That's what these databases store. That's typically what people think of when they hear the word database, right? But then there's a second bucket, which is the analytical data stores. So they typically store history, right? So historical data, right? And then that's used for two things. One is just to build reports, <laughs> to be candid, right? Um, and so these are data analysts, right? Building reports and fancy reports, but it's still reports, right? And then the other piece is using history to predict the future. So this is AI and machine learning. This is where the data scientists come, come, come into play. There's a big, big generational shift ha happening in both of these buckets, right? And I will say right away, I, I said before that as a techie, I'm a fan of the relational database. Uh, it will be around. It will be around for many, many more decades. It's been around for 40 years. It'll be around 40 years from now, right? So it's not going away. But if you look at, it's currently a $50 billion market. It's the biggest market in all of enterprise software. And for many years in the previous decade, it was growing 5 to 6 to 7% year over year. Very much had all the hallmarks of a mature market, right? Which is, which is great, right? Now it's growing at 30 plus percent. And it's actually predicted to, to hit 100 billion, right? In over the next four or five years, depending on who you ask, right? And so that's $50 billion of incremental value, incremental revenue. And we're not talking... TAM here, like potential, yeah. If we're super lucky, people could buy my new something application, right? No, we're talking actual spend every year from the enterprise on database software, right? 50 billion more over the next four or five years, right? And that's all driven by these new database vendors, right? And so that's going to break down into four subcategories inside of operational data. It's going to be one category inside of analytical data store. And I'm very happy to, to, to talk a little bit about the nuances of that. There's things called graph databases, which I represent, but then there's NoSQL document plus plus databases, time series databases, and there's sort of sub-segmentation in there that is really interesting, but it's shaken out now. We know what the four stable categories are, and they're going to remain, they're going to be the same categories by the end of this decade, by 2030. Right. Super fascinating. I love how passionate you are about database technologies. Uh, you've been in this for quite a while, uh, after all. Um, a question for you, uh, more on a personal level, because you went to Silicon Valley, I already mentioned, in 2011. Uh, as you mentioned, the Swedish and the European tech ecosystem back then was rather small. Things have changed quite a lot, I would say, especially in the last four or five years. Uh, you're actually back in Sweden since 2017, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, being away for like six, seven years and then coming back, like, well, was it a shock to you how much it's evolved since then? And and how do you how, how do you rate the ecosystem now, you know, compared to when you when you left? I have a very superficial view of this, right? Partly because I'm not in the game anymore. Like I'm not out raising early stage uh, funding. And once you get to kind of these big growth rounds, it's really a global ecosystem that that you're out talking to. You're not talking to the kind of the more local seed stage, series A uh, folks. But the, the very clear observation is just, just a completely different magnitude, right? You just look at it and like 90% of the names that people raise from these days, I don't even know, right? They didn't even exist, right? Like when, when I last, you know, had a, had, had a more granular view of the European ecosystem. I also think that just the, the, the average quality, it, it used to be like very clear that when you, when you got to Silicon Valley, they were a year or 18 months ahead of everyone else, right? And, and now that I talk to early stage kind of tech-focused venture firms, they're on par with the best in Silicon Valley, right? And that didn't used to be the case. It used to be, it used to be 
uh, lagging. And and that's never because like people were smarter over there or anything like that. It's just like a factor of the, the ecosystem there was bigger, right? Which meant that you could support a much more narrow and focused, you know, venture firm, right? So you you could be focused purely on developer first infrastructure software, you know, in the seed to seed plus stage, right? You could do that 10 years ago in Silicon Valley, whereas that was impossible in, in Europe. Now, obviously, as kind of the broader secular trends around, you know, even the technology sector at large growing and then software and internet, of course, you know, beneath it. And then Europe on a relative basis, that just means we can support much more uh, focused outfits, I think, fo focused venture firms, which means that they can be deeper on, on that, which yeah. I think overall is a really, really positive thing. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great summary. And obviously, you look at Europe also to scout for talent to hire. But I'm wondering, do you also actively engage with the ecosystem in a sense? Do you do you make angel investments? Do you do you work with policymakers or, or do you keep more of a distance and, and focus more mostly on the company? Yeah, I, I am 99.99% focused on my own company. I've rejected all kind of board and advisor and, you know, like all of that, that kind of stuff in a, in a structured formal way, uh, just because I feel like my main job is to make sure that Neo4j becomes the best that Neo4j can be. That's my my obligation to the to the employees, but but also to my investors and and, and, and to myself and to the customers, right? And so, so I, I, I'm very, very focused uh, on that. But of course, like I live here, and after you've done this for a while, you you become very interested in the art of company building. And so I do take you know informal meetings as much as I can with earlier stage founders, and in the unlikely event that they you know can be helped out and can learn from mistakes that I, that I made and things like that, right? Uh, I love that part and try to do it as much as I as as I can, which which uh, sadly isn't 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 as much as I want to. Yep, maybe one day. And I think you're being way too modest, which is also typically European, I guess. It's a bit of a re reflex we have over here. But okay, I think we're going to wrap it up. I, I found this super interesting. So thank you so much for taking the time. I'll be following, following Neo4j uh, with a lot of interest, of course. Any parting words or thoughts? No, I, I think it's uh, it's always fascinating to talk about this. And uh, it's, look, I, I'm not a patriotic guy. Uh, you know, I'm, I care... I care more about the world than about Sweden, you know, so to speak. But having said that, I now live back in Europe. My kids will grow up here. So it's just amazing to see the, you know, the growth of the broader European tech ecosystem, of which you're, you're a big part. So thank you for that. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for uh, for being part of it. Uh, welcome back to Europe, I guess. It's been a few years already, but welcome back anyway. <laughs> and uh, hopefully catch up in person soon with pants on and legs that we can see. Awesome. Thanks, Robin. Cheers, Samuel. Bye. And this is it for our today's episode. Big thanks to Emil for coming on the show. Big thanks to Robin Wouters for recording this conversation. And huge thanks to you for listening. If you like the show, follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Our audio engineering is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Check them out. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are always very welcome. Send them by email to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy your week. Bye-bye.